The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your work. It is great in scope. We just sang of, of a spread of your activity from the incarnation, the mystery of sending Christ to the, the heartbreak of the cross, to the surprising glory of the empty tomb. Your scope, your, your greatness is, takes our breath away. But the work that you have done for us is great also in what it accomplishes. Redemption. A people one to yourself. And for that we say thank you and we ask you now, would you help us to understand it a little bit more deeply? Perhaps a little bit more of the breadth of it. Perhaps a little bit more of of the personal application of it. In some way will you now speak through this passage in front of us and help us to understand not just the scope but the beauty and the depth of what you've done. So make your word clear. Spirit of God, will you, will you own the time here, own the space here, own, own our hearts, minds. Teach, please. We lift up the Son, Spirit. We lift up the Son to the glory of God the Father. That's what we ask you to do, God. Will you exalt the Son to the glory of God the Father? Build your church. Honor his name, we pray. Thank you. Amen. When Christians gather on Easter morning, there's usually a little bit more of an an extra sense of celebration, truths that we know well and think about, really talk about often throughout the year, just a little bit more kind of front of mind on this day. And maybe especially this year, perhaps because of recent sorrowful tragedies like the events in Nashville recently, or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe not deep sorrow, but just trivial burden, the the long winter that is finally breaking. For one reason or another, on different ends of the spectrum, perhaps we are just a little more ready this morning to talk about something new, new life. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. In the end of Luke chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24, there are marvelous things here in this passage, all completely unexpected given what had just happened at the cross on what we celebrated on Good Friday a couple days before. Jesus had come and claimed to be the Christ. He'd come and claimed to be the second person of the one triune God. There's one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he claimed, I'm God, come in flesh to be God's special anointed king on earth. To set up the kingdom of God, and to rescue, to deliver God's people from all of our troubles and enemies, including especially the great enemy of sin and death. That's what he claimed. But then the world rejected him, condemned him, and hung him on a cross to die, and it looked like total defeat. His followers were riding high, and then boom, total defeat. But ironically, as his critics mocked him dying on the cross, they tell us how to interpret the death. 
He's hanging there dying, and they are shouting out at him, mocking, if you are the Christ, save yourself. Save yourself from death, because they knew full well that the Christ would defeat death. But essentially they're saying, but look, everybody, look. Look at him hanging there dying. Death's defeating him. He's not the one. Look. He would defeat death if he was, but he isn't. He's condemned dying. And in a way, they are right. They just misunderstood and spoke too soon. The death of Jesus is, in fact, death under condemnation. The Bible tells us very clearly that as Jesus hung there and died, the wrath of God came to rest on him, was poured out fully on him. He does die condemned and does die condemned by God. That's certain. But keep looking, he didn't stay dead. Christ has risen and he did defeat death. That's the message of Easter morning. That's what we'll be considering this morning here in this passage. We look more closely at it for, as was prayed, this is familiar to most of us for our encouragement, for maybe the refortification of your, of your hope. But probably there are some here that you've heard some of these pieces and maybe, maybe this morning would be the time when you kind of finally see like, oh, that's how they fit together. And if you come to, to grasp that and then grab a hold of the Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus, and become a Christian, then that would be a, the sweetest of all Easter mornings for you to say, on Easter morning in 2023, I got it. And I got him. That'd be sweet. So whether this is old news or new news, that's what we're going to consider this morning, the resurrection. I'm going to read the passage and then draw out three observations from it. This is from Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. I'll read all the way through 24, verse 12. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, 
And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking inside, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Luke 23, 24. So three observations from that passage. Here's the first. Christ has risen as he predicted. Christ has risen as he predicted. We're going to begin by establishing the facts of the situation. There is a message from the facts. We'll talk about that next. Facts call for a message, call for an interpretation. We have to begin with the facts, and as we do that, realize that we are doing something very unique to biblical Christianity. The world's full of all kinds of religions and all kinds of faiths, but something that is unique, as in uno, unique, about this biblical faith is that it starts not with faith, it starts with facts. We have to start here because what actually is true is if, if the facts are, are true, then this message that we're going to come to next is true. But if the facts are not true, the message isn't true. We don't start with the faith. We don't preach the faith first. We preach the facts first. And that forces us to look at them and, and think, think like, is that true or not? We have to start there. So we start. Jesus was dead. Dead. Might seem a simplistic point to make, but we have to start there because we've got to set aside an alternative that's often been, been kind of put out there about the resurrection, namely the idea that Jesus wasn't actually dead, but he just passed out. Nope. In the end of the previous passage here in the Gospel of Luke, if we were to look back at that, we'd see countless people watching to make sure he dies. The centurion, the Roman military officer who's in charge of this whole enterprise here, he watches. It's his job to make sure he dies. He says so. And he verifies it to the Jewish religious leaders, who are, most of them are there watching, and he verifies it to Pilate, the Roman governor, who isn't there because he doesn't really care. He's off at home. So whether it's the, the neutral party, the Roman leaders, whether it's the highly motivated enemies, the Jewish leaders, whether it's the actual executioners, the soldiers and their officer, they're all convinced, mission accomplished, he's dead. They know it, and so too do his friends, like Joseph of Arimathea that we meet here in 50 to 56. We meet here this guy and a couple of other women who are surprising followers of Jesus, especially Joseph. It says that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, but disagreed with their decision. The Jewish ruling council, the people who condemned Jesus, and he says that's not right. He's a righteous man. He's an Old Testament believer, and he's looking forward to the kingdom, and he had hoped that Jesus was the king. And he disagreed with their condemnation of him. 
He's here, and also these women are mentioned who are described as resting on the Sabbath according to the commandment. The part of the point that Luke's making here in putting these folks out there is that the followers of Jesus are simple, righteous, good people. They're not sinners, they're not blasphemers. They are highly contrasted with the religious leaders who just committed public murder. They contrived the whole thing and killed an innocent man. And the followers of Jesus are not like that at all. They're simple and honest and righteous. They disagreed with what the rulers were doing. And here Joseph of Arimathea sticks out his neck further, going to the Roman governor to collect the guy that the Roman thinks is a criminal. He deals with the body, verse 53, takes it down, wraps it in linen cloths. He, he hoisted the body. He probably needs some help for this. He hoists the body that was hung on a cross above his head. He hoists him down, carries him, washes the body, wraps it up in clothes, carries it to a tomb, a brand new tomb where nobody else had been laid. He handles them with his own hands. He knows from intimate experience that Jesus is dead. And then he buried him. And the women saw the tomb, saw where it was, knew, knew where it was, saw how they laid him. They know he's dead, and they give him a decent burial because they expect him to stay dead. All of his other followers also agree to their great sorrow and shock. You see in verse 9 and following that when they hear of this, they are perplexed incredulous, they don't believe this crazy talk about resurrection because they know he's dead and dead people don't come back to life. It's not like wish fulfillment. There's no psychological thing going on here. They're crushed and hopeless. In their minds, as well as in their sight, and even with the contact of their own hands, Jesus is dead and buried, and then he isn't. Now, each of the four Gospels, to give us different details of this, like any four people telling a story, they see it from a different perspective, they emphasize different things. We're concerned with what we find here in Luke. And what do we find? Well, the women go to the tomb early on Sunday, and the heavy stone that was designed to block the entrance has been rolled away. That's unusual. And they look inside, and when they peer inside, they look in there, and they don't see the body. That's unusual. So they're perplexed, which is very similar to Peter's response in verse 12. When he runs the tomb and he looks inside, he also goes home marveling, just wondering, what does this mean? What happened? Maybe the body was stolen. Well, we get one more detail with Peter. He sees there the linen grave claws wrapped up, sitting there all by themselves. So that rules out profiteering grave robbers because that was made out of linen. That's the valuable thing the grave robbers would have come for, not the kind of thing they leave, especially since it meant they would have walked away carrying a dead, naked body. There's no profiteering grave robbers going on. Well, okay, so maybe they didn't do it for money. Maybe, maybe his followers stole the body to make it seem like he'd risen. Well, remember, none of them even expected he was going to die the day before, let, let alone have a plan for how to concoct a resurrection. 
But then we've got to think about this. That idea that the followers stole him and faked the resurrection assumes that when the followers said they saw him and 500 followers said they saw him and then they all gave great sacrifice. It cost them their homes, their jobs. Many of them it cost them their lives. They gave even ultimate sacrifice of dying. People don't do that for something they know they made up and are lying about. People will do that for something they're mistaken about but not something they themselves made up and they know it. They didn't concoct this. They're crushed by it. They're hopeless. Grave robbers, whether it be for money or for deception, seems incredibly unlikely and probably even impossible. Well, perhaps the Jewish leaders took him then to keep him safe. Well, they never claimed that they did. And they, of all people, would want him to remain dead and buried and clearly being seen to be so. They wouldn't want to do anything that would fuel this idea of resurrection. And then furthermore, when the apostles began to preach that Christ was raised from the dead in Jerusalem itself, right there, all they would have had to have done is roll out the body and Christianity is over. But that never happened. The tomb is empty, and Jesus was dead, and the burial shroud is still there, and theft or deliberate removal of the body seems incredibly unlikely, if not impossible. Those are the facts. So what happened? Pause right here. In our congregation, we often talk about this. I probably talk about this every Easter, plus every time a passage like this comes up. Luke, this passage came up five plus years ago when I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke. Preached this very same thing. So I've talked about this before, and a number of us have heard this. But maybe you haven't heard it yet, and it's good for all of us to kind of pause there. Those are the facts. And if you're a, you're a long-standing Christian, it would, I think, serve to undergird your faith to realize my faith rests on something that is solid. The, the attitude of the world right now is that we all say, I believe, all kinds of crazy stuff. And because I believe it, it must be true. We all know that's ridiculous. We can believe anything we say doesn't make it true. And in fact, if it's not true, it makes it destructive. This is not something we believe because we've been taught it. it we believe it because it rests on these facts. That can undergird your faith. And maybe you're, you're younger, you're, you're a teenager, you're growing up in this, and you've heard this a thousand times. You've been taught it by your parents. You've been taught it in the church. Maybe you've even been taught in, in the school you go to. Guys, the world doesn't believe this. The world thinks this is crazy. And you've probably met people who already, already met people who, who believe that. You're going to go out and you're going to meet people who very much disagree with that. And again, the atmosphere of the whole world is going to be, eh, it's just, you know, potato, potato. You were raised believing this about Jesus. I was raised believing this about Muhammad or whatever. 
potato, potato. And you're going to be strongly inclined to say, okay, that's for you, this is for me. Hold on. If you're, if you're 15 years old sitting here right now, you can understand this. If you're 10, you can understand this, and your parents can help you if you're 8. This is not just an idea. A dead man came back to life like he said he was going to. Because as we work through all the facts, perhaps incredibly surprisingly, the most likely option is the amazing one. Verse 4, while they puzzled over this, two angels came, a shocking thing. The women know they are in the presence of something divine. They bow down, they put their faces on the ground in fear. They're about to hear a word from God explaining, where is he? And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The body of the Lord Jesus is not in the tomb because Jesus is Lord and is alive again. He was dead, but has risen, risen back to life. And they say, remember, be reminded of this. It's exactly like he said it was going to be. If we were to look back in Luke, we could go back to chapter 9, verse 22, where Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Check, 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 that all happened. And on the third day be raised, he said. Check. Chapter 18, verse 32, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Check. Exactly like he said. It's what he said he would happen. He's the Lord. He accomplishes all that he predicted. And on the third day, he will rise. That's what we're looking at here. That's what happened. A lot of us have heard that before, and I encourage you to consider it again. But maybe for you, this, you've never actually thought about all these facts together. Put these things together, please. Something happened. Jesus came, made claims, predicted what would happen. He died, and he came back to life again. Just like he said. So what does that mean? That brings us to the second observation. Christ has risen, as he predicted. Christ has risen as was necessary. Christ has risen as was necessary. In verse 7, the angel reminds the woman, we just saw this, the Son of Man must be delivered, crucified, raised, must be. Same thing that was back in chapter 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things. That must is not just will. Big difference. Not just saying it will happen. He's saying it has to happen. It must. There's a necessity here because of the plan of God. God means to do something. So this must happen. 
And furthermore, because of the nature of God, when God means to do something, he has to, he must do it in a certain way. God's got a plan. He's determined to save a people, a people for himself made up of individual people. He's determined, I'm going to, across centuries, from every tongue and tribe and nation, I'm going to save people. I'm going to bring them to myself. I'm going to forgive them of their trespasses and sin, and I will make them my people, and I will give them my fullness. Every sweet and good thing that is me, I will deliver to them. He's going to save. That's his plan. Gracious and merciful is this Lord. And also holy and just. So his nature says, I have a plan, I want to save, I want to I deliver people from their sin. But I'm righteous and just also, and I must deal with their sin. What's he going to do? He's got, a, he's got a desire, he's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and he's got a nature that tells him how he's got to deal with sin. And so what he determines is, I'm going to send my eternal son, God come in flesh, the only person to walk the earth in flesh who did so sinlessly. So there is no need to punish him for his sin. He walked the earth sinlessly, this Jesus but I'm going to send him here and I'm going to send him to the cross and condemn him myself anyway. Why? Because he's going to put the sin of, the, of these people that he, he's got his eye on in love, he's going to put that sin on this Jesus and pay for it. I can be just and righteous, says the Lord, because I pay for sin. I don't just say, never mind, I pay for it in Christ's death. And then I take this righteousness from Christ and I put it back on these people. There's a swap, an exchange there. God's nature is satisfied. Mercy and justice, righteousness and grace, satisfied and his purpose accomplished, he saves people. So if you think about it like this, the, the, the cross is about on Good Friday, the cross, the, the crucifixion, the suffering of Jesus is about him taking God's curse onto himself away from you. And he pays for it. A bit like writing a check to pay off a debt. If that happens at your house, if you got a contractor comes over to fix your roof like I recently did, I wrote him a gigantic check. <laughs> Delightfully. <laughs> well, really, the roof no longer leaks. So. I wrote him a big old check. They gave me a receipt, marked it paid, wrote the check number on it. Paid. Here. But we all know that if that check bounced, he'd come looking for me. Because it's not exactly, totally, completely paid until three or four days from now when the check clears, right? So we say the debt's paid when we exchange... I get the invoice marked, he gets the check marked, he walks away, we're all good, I never hear from him again. Unless the check bounces, then there's a problem. Well, the cross pays. And to quote a modern spoken word artist, who I won't attempt to put it exactly like he did, but it's his, it's his image. He says that, yeah, the cross paid, but at the resurrection, what's going on is all Christians cheer 
because we see the check cleared. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was paid. It was paid when I gave him the check. But the resurrection says, yep. Didn't bounce. It's cleared. Jesus is vindicated. God says, yep. That's the one. And what he did is it. Paid. God's plan is accomplished in a way that satisfies his character so that we are redeemed. We who trust in this payment You could just say, never mind that, I'll try to write my own check, but you don't have enough in the account. You don't have enough in the account. There's no combination, it's one or the other. You or him pays, and you don't have enough in the account. We don't partially die. He dies or you die, and you can't come back to life. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. It shows that he is approved. It shows that he's the Christ. It shows that the payment of the cross worked. It shows that this message is good news. It's why the facts are. The facts are telling us that God's offer of the cross works. It must be for his purpose and his nature to be satisfied and for us to be saved must be. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from him, but you can indeed come to the Father in him. One way. This Jesus. But there's a little more that we need to consider in the must be part. Something that separates the resurrection from maybe some other vindication. There are are other places in the Bible where God said, that's my boy. That's my son. Think think of his baptism, for instance. There There are other places and other ways God could have vindicated Jesus and said, I do approve of him even if you don't know so. Something different here in the resurrection. It's not only a declaration that says that the cross worked and that Jesus is in fact who he said he was. Something more, the resurrection defeats death. So it's not only a statement, a verification, it actually defeats death. There's something wonderful here to note. And as I think about that, so just a little forewarning here, I I think that my feeling as I talk about this kind of does this. Because if we're going to see how sweet it is that he defeats death, you've got to realize how much death is awful. We throw these phrases around, the resurrection defeats death. He's alive again. Yeah, great. Death is awful. God planned and then provided someone to fight on our behalf to defeat this great and haunting enemy of death. All of our lives we carry on aware of the big elephant in the room. We're all going to die, all of us. 
all of our loved ones, the people who are most precious to us, people who make life worth living, whose existence and whose whose connection to us brings out not just the concept, but actually helps us to experience one of the sweetest, most precious things about life, relational love. Those people that you connect with and feel that from, this, this human experience of relational love, death takes that away with a real hard finality. Your mother, your father, your daughter, your son, your grandchild, your wife, your husband, your dearest lifelong friend, your comrade in arms, the ones you stay up at night worrying about or at least just hoping that they make it home safely because you long to embrace them. Every single one of those people, someday you're going to put in the tomb, so to speak, put the stone over the front of it and walk away unless they do it for you first. Death is terrible. And we try not to think about it, and sometimes they're even a little bit irritated that somebody would dare bring it up. <laughs> Please use the euphemism. They, they are no longer with us. They've passed away. They've gone on. No, they died. They're dead. Don't say that. Death is terrible. Say that sometimes. You need to be rude, but sometimes say that to realize death is terrible. We try to camouflage it. We, we give this nonsense about how it's just a part of life. And no, it isn't. It's the end of life. It's the ceasing of life. That's why it's terrible. We can remember the relationship, but we don't experience it anymore. We can remember the love, but, but it's gone. The, the delight is gone. The fun is gone. The sweetness is gone. It's bittersweet now because it's gone. Death is terrible. And if you want a kingdom of shalom, that is a word that says communal peace and wholeness, Rest and joy and relational love. A kingdom of shalom where there is a people together in rest and in wholeness, experiencing giving and taking relational love and joy and union. If you want that, and we all do, and God does, then it is necessary, must. It must be that you deal with death to take the sting out of it, to take out what's terrible about it, the gut-wrenching nature of it. It must be defeated, and that's what God did in his son at the resurrection. He didn't only atone for our sin and forgive us. He put an end to the sting of death in dealing with the sin. Christ went to this cross, and Christ died, torn and pierced and bloodied and beaten, and his friends and his mother watched that and wept, and then he rose again with a new resurrection body. He came back new and improved, no longer subject to decay, no longer subject to death. He lives forever now to relate. He lives forever now to love, to think, to act, to commune, to frolic, to work, to play in a resurrection body like you will have. Boom, like you will have. 
Can you believe that? He went down and he came up and has and has and has and has like you will have now. Death sucks. And the resurrection is sweet. Because the resurrection sucks out of death the stinger and all the venom. With sin not dealt with, death is the end. But with sin dealt with, death is a door. Death is actually the door that opens up for you the the eternal kingdom of shalom. God did something awesome in raising this one from the dead. He opened up to you. He made death the door so that death is actually yours. This is why Paul talks about all things being yours, including death, because death is actually a gift to you now, not a sting. It's the door that opens up to you eternal life. It's the door through which all of those loved ones will now pass to be with you if they are in Christ. Raised immortal to live in holy, loving community with Christ himself perfectly at the center of it all. That's what the resurrection does. God must deal with death, and he did in this king's resurrection. Christian, be reminded of that. Remember that. He said this, and he did this. And Paul said this, and the writer of Hebrews said this. It's all over the place. Be reminded of this. As a Christian, that's your reality. We will indeed always, we talked about this last week, we will indeed always grieve when we look at the sorrows of life, when we look at death, because it is the ending of something. There is still an awfulness to it. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we realize, ah, it's not the end. It's actually the beginning. That's true of you, you know that. But you have to think about that. And in fact, as I was talking about how death is awful and all those people you will put in the ground, if you were a Christian, I bet, I hope, something in you is saying, but, 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 right. But, 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 this means that death is not the end for the Christian. You know that it's true of you, but be mindful of it. If you aren't, you will live now forever in fear of death and forlorn at all the other little deaths you experience here on earth. Because, Christian, you know this is true of you, but you forget it often, and then you live, therefore, not looking to the life that is coming, but looking too much to this life here and now. And it makes you really vulnerable to all the losses of life here and now, all the little deaths. If you're living for this, that's really tenuous. The answer to that is not to nail things down and make them more solid. The answer to that is to look to the life that's coming, to look through the door. A person who's dead already, dead to self already, dead to this world already, actually can't die. Jesus said that in John when he was talking about Lazarus. The one who believes this, though he dies, yet he lives, and lives, never dies. There's a paradox in that. We could work that out some of the time, but you see it? Christian, lift up your eyes and see that the resurrection put an end to death and delivered you to hope 
here in this life, even right now, so that all the losses that you face, you will sorrow, but not as one who has no hope. And if you're not a Christian at this moment, I hope that you can see here something sweet, something that would deliver you past the enemy of death and would enable you actually to live free right now. Forgiven of your sin. Amen. And not under the master of death. Amen. That's the offer that God provides in Good Friday and Easter morning. And that takes us to the final observation, which really is a question. Christ has risen, as he predicted, as was necessary. Christ has risen. Can you believe it? Christ has risen. Can you believe it? I come to this question by asking another question of the passage here. Reading through it, perhaps you felt that it ends in an odd spot. So the question is, why doesn't Luke tell us about Mary meeting and talking with the risen Jesus? You compare the other Gospels, you realize there are other things that happened, and Luke certainly knows this, didn't mention it. Skipped it. Why? Well, I think part of the reason is to save for his, his telling of the events, to save his first mention of Jesus for the encounter on the Emmaus Road, which is coming up next in the, in the passage. But it also has this purpose. When we read through verse 12, it leaves us faced with a question of belief just like the disciples were at that moment. It carries, the whole account carries this theme of incredulity, even disbelief. Repeatedly, people just can't believe it. They are perplexed. They are amazed. They wonder it. They can't wrap their heads around it. They think that it's just silly talk. It's an idle tale, verse 11. Peter believes it enough to run and check it out, but even when he gets there, he's not sure. Can that be, really? Perhaps that's where you're left. We work through all this. We look at the facts. I make an argument that the most likely is the most amazing. And, in fact, that is the sweetest possible message for us, the hope that it delivers. And you're left kind of looking at that without physically seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now there's something I have to believe. I can't see it with my eyes. So where are you? Can you believe this? It's almost too good to be true, but can it be? What do you think? It's reasonable given the facts and the possibilities. It's reasonable given what we've seen. It would be sweet if it was. We never get past the point of faith. There are facts that point in a direction, but the call that goes out to every single person at the end of the discussion of the facts is, what do you think?
can you believe this? Please don't just say, huh, wonder what's for lunch. And table the question for forever. That's what we usually do with things that are hard, is we just say, hmm, moving on. This calls for an answer. Can you believe this? Yes or no? Is God opening your eyes to see it? Can you see it and believe it? Does it resonate in some way? Like, like hard to define yes going on in your mind. Something rings true about this. The, the argument of the facts, the, the message that's offered that the hope that's there, the, the forgiveness of guilt. And you know you're guilty. The deliverance from death. And you know you're going to die. There's a hope here. Does that ring with you in some way? Come and see. The tomb is empty. The shroud's there. Jesus isn't. Hundreds of people claim they saw him alive. And across the centuries, millions and millions of people have found life in him, forgiveness of sin, access to God, life forevermore. And that's what he offers to you too, a love that is wide and long and high and deep, a freedom, a forgiveness, a deliverance. If you surrender your heart to this loving king. And please don't say, I'll think about that later. Because there is an enemy, a spiritual enemy that does not want you to think about it later and you probably won't. Think about it now, please. A deep love a forgiving love is available in the cross and the empty tomb, only there in Jesus, but truly and surely in Jesus. Trust yourself to him and live. Let me pray. Lord, will you speak now? All of us here in this room, we're in all kinds of different places. Will you speak Will you encourage? Will you cement? Will you undergird? Will you strengthen? Will you alert and alarm and comfort and convict? Will you woo? Will you clarify? A hundred things are needed here, Lord, and you know what is best for each one. Please act. We thank you for being you for being a God who determined to save, for being a God who is just and righteous and gracious and merciful both, for doing what must be done, for coming yourself in flesh, for facing the cross, and for rising again to defeat it. Thank you. Build your church and honor your name, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.